0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Album Years with myself, Stephen Wilson and Timothy Bowness. Hello. And uh, Tim, so we're, we're, we're back in lockdown in the UK, so we've got plenty of time to have a complete nerd off. And I'm sure people have been noticing that our podcasts have been getting progressively more sloppy and extended as time's gone on, haven't they? It is true. Well, we just can't be bothered to edit.
1: I think I, I keep on telling people that normally we speak for about four hours and then we edit it down to a decent album-length, almost, edition. But the last few times, we've maybe only been editing about half of it. We've just been either getting lazy or more comfortable. I'm not quite sure which.
0: So there's a nice parallel here, isn't there? Because we've often said that most of the classic albums are about 40 minutes in length. And then as the CD era comes along, things become more bloated, more sloppy, less editing, more extended. So that's basically the way we're going, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and also to mirror this year, really, because this year is 1974, which I think is what I would call peak prog in all respects.
0: But anyway, before we start, Tim, let's go through, as is traditional, This part of the show, complaints in errata. As the person that monitors the the feedback, what have we got this time?
1: Well, again, only one error. Comes from your side. Of course. And it is very minor. Very minor. Okay. A few people, very offended Manson fans, were saying, what, return of the Grey Lantern? I think you'll find it's attack of the Grey Lantern.
0: And that is a terrible error, and and uh, I, hold, I hold my hands up and say yes, that, yes, that that's a terrible error, uh, and a great record as well. So there's no excuse for getting the name of a great record wrong, particularly if the album is called Benefit, uh, in your case too.
1: <laughs> oh, you'll never let me forget that one. Um, other than that, a few people saying, well, you know, I don't know about bonus mentioning Fripp, but he's always mentioning Eno.
0: I mean, I'm just looking down your list in 1974. It's 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 going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult, isn't it, to avoid mentioning Eno or Fripp, for that matter. Uh, Impossible. So let's start, 1974. So you kind of already mentioned that um, 1974 was, you said that it was like the, the peak uh, of progressive rock. But was it? Because it progressive rock was kind of beginning to, uh, beginning to turn a bit, wasn't it? Except I think this is when it was ubiquitous. I think that, you know, you could Mm. argue that the
1: underground and progressive, it was rising from sort of Sgt. Pepper's through to this period. And by this period, what I mean by peak prog is that almost everybody's doing it. You know, even the Queen is doing the Changing of the Guard in 7-8. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing concept albums, country artists like Willie Nelson. And I think in that respect that it's where the underground of the 60s, early 70s has become mainstream in a big way and so progressive conceits like concept albums and even musical experimentation is very very normal in almost every single genre
0: Yes, I take your point. Yeah, because I'm looking down the list. It's it's almost like that is evident not from the progressive rock artists themselves, but as you say, from the artists that have nothing to do on the surface with that genre, making more conceptual albums. Uh, you pointed out the Willie Nelson, but also uh, in the country category today, we have uh, Mike Nesmith's "The Prison" album again, which is a very mm. weighty, you know, piece of intellectual conceptual cosmic country we'll, we'll come on to that later but uh so i do take your point yeah but let's start with the actual the mainstream progressive artists themselves because in an interesting year you know not necessarily the best work that some of these these artists produce like jethro Tell made war child this year it's a good record but i don't think anyone would call it a, you know a, a peak jethro Tell record then we have yes making relay which is a kind of strange one in their catalogue isn't it it's it's um it's probably almost like the coldest Album from this era, in the sense it's kind of moving towards a more kind of you know jazz rock, very angular jazz rock, quite dissonant in places, isn't it?
1: They they do it very differently though. They're obviously taking on board influences from Return to Forever and Mahavishnu Orchestra, mm. but they're adding a quintessential yesness to it, and then with. Pieces like Soon, there are moments of incredible beauty amidst the distance. I think it's a great album, actually, Relay. I, I like
0: it. Yeah, I do like it. It's interesting. I, I remix, as I'm sure many people know, I remix that kind of sequence of albums starting from the Yes album through to Relay. And you can, well, I, I'm talking in terms of just the sonic qualities of the record, the, the sound of the records become harsher and harsher. And uh, without naming any names, somebody who was involved in those records, I won't say who, basically said that the sound of the Yes records basically degraded in direct relation to the amount of cocaine that went up a particular Ah. individual's nose. And (laughs) apparently one of the things that cocaine does is it makes you want to hear everything really trebly and really bright and really in your face because you're so kind of hyper. Uh, A little aside there. But the two albums I think we want to talk about here because um, they're both – I suppose more kind of underdog bands in the progressive genre, and I'm a big fan of both these records. Gentle Giant, *The Power and the Glory*, which for me is their masterpiece. This this is just uh, uh, for me, progressive rock in its in all its glory. Pardon the pun. In the sense that this is music which is both accessible and incredibly complex. Uh, and it doesn't forsake one for the other, and I think that was the beauty of Gentle Giant. One of the one of the things about Gentle Giant influenced bands is they always seem to take the technique and that kind of vertical complexity, mm. but they miss out on that kind of charm and that pop sensibility. Unless we forget, the Gentle Giant came originally came out of Simon Dupree and that that kind of very psychedelic pop. Aspect was always there with them, wasn't it? Um, beautiful melodies and
1: yeah, I, th- I think it probably is their best album because I think that you know what it preceded was leading up to this moment, and this is where all of the the skills, the melody, and the experiment blend effortlessly. I mean, I've got a lot of time for the two albums that came after this, where they were kind of looser, slightly more melodic, again slightly more accessible. So I've always really liked uh, Freehand. An interview, but I think this is an exceptional album. And I guess Kerry Mania, whose voice I always really liked, he has slightly more of a role on this album. And for those who don't know Kerry Mania's voice, he's got an incredibly pure, almost English choir boy voice. And, And in a way, it's a bit like Peter Hamill at his prettiest without any of the anger.
0: Yes and and the song on this record that Kerry pretty much wrote and sang himself Aspirations for Me is one of my mo- one of my most favorite songs by anyone and yeah. and it's a great example of something that actually is very accessible very beautiful and it's only when you start to examine the way the rhythmic meters are created that you understand that actually there's a lot of sophistication a lot of complexity Gone into the music as well. This is not simple music, but it has a Hmm. very, very kind of powerful, simple, affecting, emotional quality. So you're not you're not distracted by that complexity. And I think that's something that so much, you know, clever progressive rock kind of misses. That and Gentle Giant for me are the exception that prove the rule. You know, their music is incredibly complicated, but never at the expense of the emotional kick.
1: Yeah, you know, it's a band who are kind of following their muse. Luckily, I think because of this kind of globalisation of progressive, they're having a great deal of success in Canada and America in particular around this stage. And um, it is quite fascinating to listen to bands like this who are able to just do what they feel and what they want without interference. And of course, by the end of the decade, um, that isn't the case, really.
0: So I think the other album I want to talk about from this year that that you've quite rightly put in the progressive rock genre is, I guess, another band, I suppose, that are very interested in this idea of complex rhythmic metres and, you know, that kind of thing, which is Egg and the Civil Service. Now, Egg is a band that only made three albums, and I think in a way i think if they'd carried on a bit longer and made more records they might be more well known but i think they they get a little bit overlooked don't they yeah which is a shame because certainly the polite force and the civil service i think for me are as good as any any album made in the name of progressive rock. So predominantly instrumental, uh, nominally associated with the sort of so-called Canterbury School. Dave Stewart, the, the main keyboard player, uh, obviously was also in Hatfield in the North, National Health. Um, so he's very much associated with that scene. And his keyboards really are the, the sort of, you know, the, the, the hallmark, well, of all of those bands in a way, isn't it? But particularly in Egg, where they didn't have a guitar player. This is just keyboards, bass and drums.
1: This album's a bit different in the sense that you get the woodwind quartets as well, which weren't on the earlier Egg albums. And so there's another voice outside of the keyboard. And it's one of the only albums I've heard really complex woodwind quartet arrangements um, in terms of rock.
0: Yes, although I think Dave will tell you the only reason the woodwind quartets are on there is because they didn't have enough material. (laughs) Uh, Yes. uh, Because this album, just to give a little bit of backstory, I believe I'm right in saying this album was kind of a one-off reformation. The band had actually split up uh, two years prior to this, and this was a chance to basically record a one-off chance they were given by Virgin, the label, to record the material they had not recorded at the time and they had left over, except they only had about 30 minutes, so they had to sort of pad it out with the woodwinds. But those woodwinds, to be fair, they work really beautifully in context, don't they?
1: Well, it gives it a real quality, actually. It's one of the things that distinguishes it from the earlier Egg albums. And yeah, as you say, it's a bit like the Quiet Sun album, which I think came out a year after this, the Vil where it was his pre-Roxy music jazz rock band, and then getting success with Roxy meant that he could... Finally, record all the material he'd um, written with them, which, which is another great album. Actually, the Quiet Sun album, I'd recommend. Yeah, my
0: no, I, I do like that too. Yeah, but how do I mean? How would you describe? You know, I mean, it's 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 complex, isn't it? But it's got that real charm to it, hasn't it? It do, again, it doesn't seem a bit like we were talking about the Gentle Giant. It doesn't seem like complexity for the sake of it. Although clearly they are fascinated by time, using different time signatures and that kind of thing but not bashing you over the head head with it. I don't feel like I'm sort of being lectured when I'm listening to Egg. It's a very enjoyable, very very, feels like a very organic, very natural sound in a way too, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, well, I've always loved their use of um, female vocal harmonies as well, I think, Mm. which kind of softens the music and gives it a very haunting quality, yeah. Um, And weirdly a bit like with gentle giant there's a very strong bark influence on this i think very specifically in the organ sound so in some ways it's a bit like a more academic version of the nice or what emerson lake and palmer could have been had they gone down a different route because essentially it is a kind of power trio with um organ keyboards dominating
0: there's something about Egg that feels quite small and quite homegrown and quite charming in that respect. And also, they, they have, I guess they have got that Gentle Giant thing in the sense also where they can really rock out too. Some of it's quite aggressive. And if you listen to the beginning of a track like Enneagram, that's a really aggressive opening, you know, isn't it? So they can rock out mm. too. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's a, a fairly, uh, you know, relatively unknown sort of entry in the progressive rock canon from this era. I guess people know Hatfield in the North perhaps more than Egg. But that's a a wonderful record. The Civil Surface Egg, yeah. So other big hitters, some big hitters releasing records. Obviously, King Crimson released two albums this year. And uh, I'd like to deny Tim the opportunity to mention uh, Robert Fripp, at least in this part of the show. uh, Damn you. Damn me, yes. And uh, Genesis released The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, which I know you like a lot.
1: I think it's a magnificent album. And one of the things that's kind of interesting for me, this is peak prog. And so you're getting a lot of bands all over the world emulating that progressive ambition, that symphonic pretension, the conceptual nature. But what is kind of interesting to me is that the major players, people like Genesis, Jethro Tull, King Crimson, yes, are actually doing something different. I mean, Genesis, I think, like Hamill and like Fripp, did sense there was a change. And in some ways, perhaps they were as influenced by, you know, the art rock and art pop that was around. And obviously, Eno contributes sonically to The lime Down on Broadway and, you know, had worked with Robert Fripp um, prior to the Red Starless period. And there's a kind of a, an anger and a looseness in Red and Starless, which is kind of ripping apart any progressive cliches. And I think with The Lamb Down on Broadway, Genesis are experimenting fantastically, you know, with beautiful pop songs, ambient experiments. This is not prog by numbers, nor is something like Yes, Relayer, and you could argue that a lot of the bands that have had success in this period under the progressive banner, and they've made very good albums, you know, the Focus albums this year, Hamburger Concerto, the Camel album, Mirage, they're much more prog by numbers than the heavy hitters in prog who seem to be already searching for something different. <laughs>
0: So we're gonna we're gonna move on to uh, uh, you mentioned Hamill there, who's another person that's kind of ubiquitous on our shows, isn't he? We're both massive fans, aren't we? And, and you know, and he's endlessly discussable as well because he did do so many different things, and he seems to span so many different kind of musical approaches and genres. And you've uh, this we're working off your list today. You've got this this category called Mavericks. Uh, which I think is a really Mm. interesting uh, uh, way to look at it, yeah. Um, And uh, Peter released two fantastic records this year, In Camera and Silent Corner of the Empty Stage, two absolute masterpieces for me, both pretty much homegrown records. He made them, I think, in his own home studio on four-track or eight-track and maybe then took them to a studio later to mix. But they still have that very DIY aesthetic, which is something... Mm. That is very unusual at the time, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're you know we're operating in a sort of era now where everyone makes records at home. Yeah, but people simply didn't do it in those days, did they? And yet here he is creating his own studio setup at home, sofa sound, which enables him to come out with this these kind of records that probably wouldn't have been made otherwise. It's, it's probably fair to say that you know no no record company would have bankrolled these kind of records to the extent of putting someone in a big expensive studio. No. To, to come up with a track like Gog Magog in Bromine Chambers, which just, this, record, this track just blows my mind. This is like, this track is like the sound of a thousand coffin lids opening. It just sends a shiver up my spine.
1: Well, yeah, and I think, you know, if you want a good example of his imagination at Loose, I think the opening track to Silent Corner, Modern, mm. which begins as quite a sort of bitter Sing a songwriter piece, but then proceeds through about 10 really unexpected movements. And it's progressive in the sense that it's incredibly eclectic, incredibly experimental, but it's very DIY. It's not necessarily virtuosic, but what it is is incredibly surprising. And I think that tonally on these albums, his use of texture is very unusual
0: and also the fact he can go from sort of incredibly tender beauty to to you know sort of raging anger almost within the same song it's interesting you mentioned the non musicianship and i think that's what i love about these records like modern the track you mentioned that starts off with him essentially playing the open strings on an acoustic guitar da 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 anyone that's tuned a guitar will know that the open strings and then da 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 and then using that as a vocal melody and so that's actually someone taking a guitar not even putting their fingers on it just using the open strings as a starting point for this magnificent as you say a track that unfolds in very unexpected very quirky ways
1: yeah well talking of beauty I was going to say Wilhelmina uh, one of the tracks uh, apparently that was written for Shirley Bassey I've heard or Shirley Bassey was considering doing a cover version of that and when you listen to it you can almost hear it.
0: Mm. Also, you, we've mentioned him twice before, so here's your chance to to get some more drinks down, you guys. Uh, Brian Eno made also two records this year. Who? Two, two, yeah, exactly. Uh, his first two. Solo albums, Here Come the Warm Jets, Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy. They're kind of two sides of the same coin in a way, aren't they? In fact, to the point that I often mm. forget which tracks are on which. Uh, Third Uncle is on Taking Tiger Mountain, I think, and yeah. Babies on Fire is on Here Comes the Warm Jets, which yeah. are two, two of my favourite Eno songs, both graced with extraordinary uh, Robert Fripp guitar solos. Well, talking about Fripp,
1: I think one of the things that I've always found interesting is that, of course, his work with Crimson is extraordinary, but I've often found that as a collaborator, when he's working on instinct, he's maybe even better. So his work for Mm. Bowie, his work for Eno, where perhaps he's kind of not engaging his brain as much. Um, He does remarkable things. You know, he changes the idea of what a conventional rock solo can be. Whereas obviously with Inking Crimson, even on The Magnificent Red, this music is Even in the improvised parts, it seems quite composed, quite cerebral. And he seems to be working on his instinct when he's with people like Eno, when he's with people like Bowie, Talking Heads, etc. And um, yeah, so I think his contributions are great. Obviously, for Eno, it's got something in common uh, with Hamill in that he's not the most gifted of musicians technically. He's actually got more ideas than he has technical gifts. But then he's playing, as I think Phil Manzanero did with Aso one gifted players against primitive players. And the fusion of those things is incredibly exciting on these albums. And I guess with these albums, I think this is almost Eno making the Roxy Music albums he thought Roxy Music should have been making because in some respects, they're coming out of that melting pot of influences that you hear on the first two Roxy albums. And it's almost like... He's carrying on the early Roxy torch, perhaps more than Roxy, although I think, you know, Country Music, which was the Roxy Music album in 74 is, sorry, uh, Country Life. Oh, that was going to be a
0: shocking error. I was hoping you were going to let that one go, but you've corrected yourself. Well, I have to
1: say, you've already made, you've made one error, which I haven't corrected so far. Yeah, I've not corrected it. Go correct it. Country Life.
0: Yeah. What was the error I made? 1974. Yeah.
1: Um, silent Corner of the Empty Stage, I think.
0: So also this year we have, a, a, I think, a bona fide masterpiece in in Robert Wyatt's first, uh, well, I should say first solo record after his accident. He, I think he'd made an album yeah. called The End of an Ear prior to this, pretty much more as in his role as a drummer and a musician. But mm. he's now paralysed and he's come back with his first, I guess what you might call more traditional singer-songwriter album, Rock Bottom, this year except it's not is it it's not traditional it's not mm. a traditional singer songwriter album in any respect is it this is an album which really redefines the notions of what a singer songwriter album could be um, and it's an interest it's a very interesting group of musicians he's got Nick Mason from Pink Floyd producing he's got people like Ivor Cutler Mike Oldfield Hugh Hopper from Soft Machine they basically essentially working with a, what I imagine was a very close knit group of friends or people that he mm. felt comfortable to work with and creating this i mean i listened again to it last night that sequence uh the opening side two sequence of alphib and alfie where he's mm. basically i mean that's the sort of thing that could go horribly wrong isn't it he's basically mm. vocalizing like a baby isn't it i mean speaking nursery rhyme lyrics as a kind of what appears yeah. to be a love song to his partner
1: it's very brave and as you say i think that it is a kind of a song of dependency because I guess that after the accident, he was rendered almost childlike and dependent upon the help of others. And so, yes, it's it's gibberish, but incredibly affecting gibberish. And this is an album, I remember hearing it described as strangely beautiful and beautifully strange. And in some ways, I can't think of a better Description.
0: I mean, rock bottom, as I say, it has got that sense of almost regressing to, you know, not even childhood, to babyhood. Uh, you know, he's on that on that track that I just mentioned. He's just making baby noises and he's he's calling, you know, he's changing the word. So he's calling his lover a larder. You're my larder. Mm. You know, the sort of thing that my kids do, you know, sort of doing silly things with language and getting words wrong and sort of laughing at it. But at the same time, it feels like there's something incredibly sad about it, isn't there? There's that sense yeah. of desolation that I guess he must have felt after he was paralysed. So there's this kind of channeling almost, as you say, of this feeling of being incredibly dependent suddenly, losing all mm. of all of his independencies, all of his independencies that he was used to, and some of his faculties that he was used to, like being able to walk and, and bathe himself and well, go to the bathroom. On he him. was a
1: great drummer, you know he was a, a great really good, drummer, absolutely. Drummer.
0: And he's lost all that, but somehow out of this he's managed to reinvent himself as arguably something even greater and in a way this is what i think this is the kind of beginning of what people think of now when they think of robert white isn't it that Mm. that kind of that that keyboard sound is kind of his hallmark isn't it that kind of wavering sort of queasy keyboard sound that's the basis of all of these songs that's his trademark well that
1: is the thing isn't it because you know you listen to a lot of keyboards on albums from this period and you can recognize them instantly i cannot recognize what it's playing. And I don't know whether it's because he's using particularly obscure models or he's processing that sound in such an unusual way. But it's so distinctive. And it's, it's a combination of his use of chords and harmony and the sound. And there's a real tension because, as you say, there's a gorgeous melancholy that runs throughout the album. But there's also a tension that rises and reaches a climax on the final piece where you have Ivor Cutler and Mike Oldfield join in. And he always manages i guess this is the thing i'm going to say about egg as well that why it has a smallness there's a canterbury quality there's a canterbury intimacy that you hear in the music of early soft machine and caravan that's also in egg that still makes its way into rock bottom and he undercuts the seriousness and the tension with ivor cutler reciting an absurd poem Mm-mm. And this is while Mike Oldfield is maybe delivering the solo of his life underneath it.
0: Yes, I think you're right. There's definitely that sense of undercutting what could be could become bathos or very pretentious, and it never feels like it tips over into that, does it? Uh, also, this year in in Mavericks, you've got um, another great Kevin Coyne album, Blame It on the Night, uh, and another Kevin Kevin Ayers, again associated with the Canterbury. Soft Machine, uh, Axis, conf- no. Confessions of Doctor Dream, which is a, produced a, a, by a Rupert record, Hine. Produced by Rupert F- Hine, who I'm, I'm looking forward to discussing uh, on, when we get to the particular relevant years, discussing some of Rupert's solo albums from the early 80s, which I know we're both both big fans of. So let's interesting. Um, you know, again, you mentioned at the top of the top of the episode about how this idea of progressive rock or conceptual conceit is kind of seeping its way into all sort of corners of the of the music world. Here, perhaps the least likely, you know, in a sense, to have picked up on that uh, is the world of you know American country music. And yet, this year we have. At least two of these, Michael Nesmith's The Prison and Willie Nelson's Phases and Stages, are clearly records that have a kind of conceptual kind of continuum to them as albums. You know, they're definitely trying to, you know, tap yeah. into that approach. Let's talk about the Michael Nesmith album, The Prison. I mean, this is, I mean, is it a country album? I mean, I guess he's kind of vaguely associated with the country genre, but this is not really country music, is it? The Prison? I'm not sure it is, to be honest. I
1: think that, you know, we have this thing, don't we, that when you're established in a genre, it defines you to an extent. So Manson, to all intents and purposes, produced a prog rock album in six, but they've already been cast as indie or Britpop. Um, And we found this with you to an extent, that because you've been associated with progressive and rock, whatever you do, sometimes is seen as that. And I think that with um, Nesmith, through the years, he's become known as a country singer-songwriter.
0: It's almost like, I think if it is country, it's very cosmic country, isn't it? Because there's this constant sense of these very, very rich keyboard textures. I think there's a lot of string mm. string synthesizer on this record, isn't there? And I think also some real strings in places. But all underpinned by the acoustic 12-string and acoustic guitar and these gorgeous, gorgeous, like haunting melodies. And,
1: um, yeah, well, isn't this kind of tied in with um, the book as well?
0: I guess, that, yeah, you're supposed to, I think you're supposed to be able to read the story in real time as you listen to the album, which I think is about 40, 48 minutes long. So you're supposed to basically read the story as you listen to the music.
1: I mean, it is as much a soundtrack as it
0: is right. an album yes. in some yeah. ways. It's very, it's very gloopy and rich in the way it's arranged. Mm. It's, it sounds very lush. It's almost like you can just sort of, bathe in the sound of this record. It's almost proto-ambient in that sense, is that you can just lose yourself in this glorious kind of texture of sound. And his voice, yeah. his voice, of course, is beautiful too. Well, the only other
1: thing I can kind of tie into, because you're right, I think in some ways it does have a proto-ambience, but it's coming from a very different direction. And it reminds me a little bit of Beaver and Krauss in that respect as well, that they're creating ambient albums before the term is even coined. Mm, mm.
0: Let's, I want to talk about what I think for me is is one of the great masterpieces from 1974, which also falls very loosely into this category, which is Gene Clark's No Other. And you, know, this is an album obviously that has, it has a strong element of country music, but it's not country music. I mean, Gene Clark famously was in The Birds, but arrived at a point where he was making music that was clearly influenced by the American country tradition. And this album really stands alone in the sense, even in his own catalogue. I mean, he never really followed it up. I don't think it was very successful at the time. It's one of those albums, I guess, in, in that respect, it has something in common with the Nick Drake catalogue that has been constantly rediscovered and reappraised in the decades since it was made and is now quite rightly held up as an absolute masterpiece. An interesting 4AD reissued this album, the, you know, the none more hip indie label, uh, alternative indie label, Reissued this last year. I mean, how to describe no other? It has a kind of a yearning melancholy to it. It's almost like this guy has the weight of the world on his shoulders, doesn't he? But the arrangements um, are just stunning, aren't they? These wall of sound arrangements with this glorious, glorious voice over the top. Yeah, well, I think it, it sort
1: of deserves that cosmic country category that it's placed in. And it has something of the sound of Dark Side of the Moon. There are very yes. rich synth editions. The backing of singers, the girl reverb, backing reverb, singers. The backing singers. Yeah, yeah there's a gospel yeah. element in this as well. It's bringing in quite a number of aspects outside of country. And as you say, there's a yearning melancholy throughout. So I always kind of saw it as being a country-tinged Dark Side of the Moon. And one of the only precedents I kind of hear is um, Poco, the year before, had done an album called Crazy Eyes. And there's um, a nine minute title track, which also has a certain kind of Floydian
0: melancholy and symphonic grandeur. But I mean, there just seems to be such an incredible sense of disappointment and disillusion in his vocal delivery, doesn't there? But it's not like he's bitter about it, it's just the sadness if you like, of something unfulfilled or some sense of regret. And I think that's what I feel, you know, when I hear this music. So, that I mean, that, this is definitely one of my my no-risk discs. I think I think your analogy with Dark Side of the Moon is a good one. This is almost like the Dark Side of the Moon of, of cosmic country. It feels mm. like it has that sense of scale, doesn't it?
1: Yes, and uh, as you say, there's a fragility in the voice, which I think it's interesting you point out the Nick Drake, that one of the things that, say, Nick Drake, Robert Wyatt, Gene Clark have is a sadness without any kind of bitterness. Mm. They're not blaming anybody. Mm. There's almost a kind of instinctive reaction to the sadness of their circumstances or the sadness of the world. Mm. And in the case of Robert White, as we said, he undercuts that often
0: with humour. So, so let's move on. The next category you have uh, have here is R and B. Shuggy Otis's Inspiration Information, one of the great finds for me of the last ten years. I first discovered this album uh, when there was a record store day edition came out in two thousand thirteen. And Sly and the Family Stone's Small Talk, they have a very mm. similar sound to them, and I think Shuggy Otis is very much inspired by the sort of yeah. notion of Sly and the Family Stone, that kind of psychedelic soul funk thing but i think he made the better record this year and again mm. this is another example of a you know an album that essentially comes from the world of r&b and funk but it's so rich in terms of the kind of musical forces that are being used here there's almost a, i don't know if you agree with me it's almost like something that that kind of predates kind of slick west coast accessibility of something like fleetwood mac's rumors on an album like mm-hmm. inspiration information the use of orchestral, t- very west, very kind of laid back, very accessible, great hooks. Yeah, no, I mean I,
1: I agree with you. I think it's a it's a strong album. It's one I kind of discovered over the last ten years or well. I think partly because uh, David Byrne had been raving about it. On one level, you can understand why people think that this is the missing masterpiece, a work of genius that should have been more celebrated. And on another level, you think, well, actually, it's just a great conventional album with some experimental touches, because there's, you know, quite a number of instrumentals on this, quite a lot of use of drum machine, which is where it ties in very much with Sly and the Family Stone. And I always saw it as being a more accessible, more sensuous version of what Sly and the Family Stone had kind of pioneered on. There's a riot going on, really.
0: Yeah, I mean, as you say, that was one of the reasons I kind of put these together. I felt that use of drum machine, also the use of organ textures and the kind of the voice, I think, also is quite similar. That kind of sweetness that Sly Stone has when he wants to sing in that yeah. way is all over small talk. And that's that's the kind of Shuggy Otis approach too. he was 21 when he made this album. And this is his second mm. album. It's just unbelievable. I, th- I also hear a lot of what, you know, we might associate, say, 10 years later with what Prince was going to do. Yeah. That kind of fusion of pop melody, psychedelia, f- funk and soul and great hooks as well. I mean, Out of My Head is just such a catchy earworm. I do wonder if maybe this record had come out a couple of years later. It might have even sort of caught on with that that kind of market and done better than it did at the time.
1: I think it's one of those albums that it could have been released maybe two or three years earlier or two or three years later mm. and had more impact than it did. Because, you know, one of the things I was thinking about in 1974 is when – We picked on the year, if we wanted to, we could probably do an entire series on 1974 because it was so fascinating for so many of the genres. And this is a great example of an album, you know, you were talking earlier about Gentle Giant and Egg being accessible yet inventive. And this is effortlessly accessible and sweet. And yet it doesn't flinch on experiment. As you say, there's a kind of psychedelic curiosity running through it and in the use of drum machines although sly stone had used this it was not commonplace in 1974 on
0: an r&b album right yeah Yeah. so it's got that kind of intimacy too hasn't it i mean to me to me this is like you know this is up there with what's going on for me i just think this is just such and it's a record that i think anyone you know if we're going to pick a no risk disc actually well. I would say the Gene Clark, Gene Clark, no other. This for me would be the other no-risk disc that perhaps people don't know that you almost can't fail to like. So that would be my pick from the R&B category. Also this year, we have Stevie Wonder's Fulfillingness First Finale, which is, uh, you know, part of a string of wonderful records that he was in the process of creating uh, in the early 70s. Uh, An album I don't know that you put on the list, Gil Scott Heron's Winter in America. I mean, I think of Gil Scott Heron as, as, you know, more of a poet than a songwriter, but what is this one like?
1: Well, this one's a really interesting one. It's his transitional album, really, because his first album is the poetry set to Rhythms, Revolution Will Not Be Televised style approach. But he was working with a jazz musician, Brian Jackson, and the material was becoming increasingly melodic and jazz influenced. And Winter in America is mostly a really intimate, very beautiful ballad album. So lots of Fender Rhodes, bits of flute. Gil Scott Heron's remarkably rich
0: voice so I, I take it that winter in america is a metaphor then this this is about the the, the hard times in america essentially right it is to an extent and, and specifically i think the hard
1: times experienced by black people mm. in america and um I, the track winter america doesn't appear until the next year on his follow-up and that is a gorgeous piece it's maybe you know one of the strongest things he ever did
0: Okay, it sounds like it's a very topical record then, uh, given what's going on in the world right now. So um, the next category you have is post psychedelic rock, um, and you've used this as a category for some some bands I really love: Man, uh, Rhinos, Winos, and Lunatics, Hawkwind, Hall of the Mountain Grill. Uh, but you've also got Zappa and and Beefheart in here. Um, Zappa made obviously a classic apostrophe album this year. Beefheart made a couple of albums that are very often sort of dismissed as being his sort of sellout records, but I. I really like these records, Unconditionally Guaranteed and Blue Jeans and Moonbeams. And there's no doubt that he was kind of forced to compromise a little bit on these records. But I think in some senses it worked, didn't it? I mean, the, the, these these records have got some lovely songs on them.
1: I've never understood the hatred for these albums. Mm. Um, and they're great showcases for his voice. And he's much more tender. You know, he's much more in the role here of a kind of a mm. blues rock Statesman, but there are some beautiful melodies. Really nice feel in the music. It's just not as jagged, complex, eccentric as what he's done. But he's still a brilliant singer with, in my opinion, a very sensitive backing band.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a world away from Troutmask Replica, isn't it? This. I mean, these these are very conventional sort of uh, pop songs there is that sense that he can do something which for him is comparatively middle of the road, but it still sounds very much a part of his universe and his whole country. In
1: some ways, there should have been bigger successes because Mm. they're very accessible albums with a certain tenderness. And, you know, had they maybe hit in the way that bands like Little Feet did, he might have had another an alternative career. And I think it's because they were critically lambasted and because they perhaps didn't sell as well as he wanted them to, that they were later dismissed as um, poor efforts.
0: But perhaps this comes back to what you're saying, in a sense. You were, you were talking about, uh, you know, artists being defined very early on in their career and not really being permitted to, to, to you know, to break the pattern. And maybe this is the case with him too, that people thought of him as this kind of freak that, cre- that, had, yeah. cre- that had created Trap Mask Replica and, and Lick My Decals Off Baby. And what's he doing making relatively conventional, you know, in pan alley pop music it never mind the fact it's actually very high quality uh, and very good you know uh so it's almost like not being allowed out of that box you know it's a problem we see time and time and time again isn't it really
1: yeah and i think the thing is with beefheart that he clearly came from those reference points you know that you can hear his love of r&b his love of the bluesman his love of pop songs you know it was always in the mix so i don't think he was compromising in the slightest
0: so then we have the the Mighty Hawkwind, uh, one of their classic albums for me. Hall of the Mountain Grill, some of my favourite songs on this record. Psychedelic Warlords, uh, Wind of Change, D-Rider, Paradox, You Better Believe It. Just a, a, an absolute classic Hawkwind album. And, and an album that they were very closely uh, sort of, uh, you know, aff- affiliated with Man. Also making one of their great records, I think, this year, Rhinos, Winos and Lunatics, produced by... Uh, Roy Thomas Baker, probably one of their most professional sounding records. Not that their other records didn't mm. sound good, but this, I think, this is a more, slightly more streamlined record where the melodies really come to the fore. Are you a fan of either of these records, Tim?
1: Sort of, yeah. I mean, Hollow Mountain Gorillas, where they're sort of using a lot more mellotron, isn't it? This is, as well. You know, we're talking about Peak Prog. I think that Prog kind of infected the Hawkwind sound around the mid seventies, particularly the album that's going to follow this. But you know, there's a very strong Um, Progressive element to it. Um, And man, yeah, I've always had time for. I don't know them as well as I should, but whenever I have heard them, I've always been quite surprised because there is a really nice feel in the music and they're a lot more serious than perhaps the reputation suggests.
0: Well, I think they, you know, a lot of people have kind of referred to them in a way as the British Grateful Dead in the sense they had kind of jam band mentality. Uh, long before that was a thing but I think they were they were a lot more uh flexible than that would suggest and sorry to Grateful Dead fans I, I think you know I, I like the Grateful Dead by the way but I think man were were, we're a little bit more than just a, the equivalent uh, go and listen to a song called California Silks and Satins off this record it's one of the most beautiful I mean the vocal arrangements the the sound of the guitar the arrangement it's very lush uh you know it's much more sophisticated I would say than anything that a jam band would normally be expected to do but,
1: but i think I would say the same with Grateful Dead, in the sense that Blues for Allah isn't jam band music, it's very complex, very interesting, and uh, Terrapin Station's got some wonderful stuff on it.
0: Let's move on to, to your next category, which is jazz and jazz rock. I think it's fair to say that that, that jazz rock um, was really at peak for the first five years of the 70s, wasn't it? But there's still some amazing jazz rock being made uh, in 1974, isn't there? And this is, I guess this is another album you've got top of the list here, which is pretty underrated. Even in their own catalogue, Mahavishnu Orchestra with the London Symphony Orchestra's Apocalypse album, produced by George Martin. The idea of taking the furious jazz rock of the Mahavishnu Orchestra and fusing it with orchestral arrangements, obviously didn't resonate with everyone. I absolutely love this record. I don't know about you, Tim.
1: Yeah, it's always one of my favourites, if not my favourite, Mahavishnu. And I think you're right that maybe because people saw that they'd neutered the fire. You know, those early albums, you can really hear the influence on progressive music. You know, as much as progressive music is influencing jazz fusion, jazz fusion is influencing progressive music. So in Relaya you can hear the influence of early Mahavishnu in What Crimson were doing in 73, 74, there's a strong Mahavishnu influence, but you could argue that Mahavishnu in turn are being influenced by the gigantic conceits of prog rock. And uh, and I rather like this.
0: Yeah, I think it's an absolutely gorgeous record. I mean, I think there is still some fury on the record, uh, but certainly it's not the fury that you get from In A Mounting Flame or Birds of Fire. It's not the fury of a live band with that incredible sense of abandon and momentum. It is mm. more considered. Of course, it had to be in order to incorporate the orchestral uh, elements. But I still think it's a it's a pretty, you know, fiery record. Talking of which, um, at the complete opposite end of the spectrum, we have Miles Davis releasing Get Up With It this year, which is... Um, It's one of those albums that's so badly recorded, it's become part of the texture of the music, the kind of sludginess of this record. And you think of songs, you know, there's a track on this record called Rated X, which arguably is the most dissonant and violent pieces of music ever made in the name of jazz. I don't know if you agree with me on that, Tim. Oh,
1: yes. I mean, for me, that has got the fury of something at Van de Graaff. And it's also got the dissonance of something like Van de Graaff. Rated X. And and it's an extraordinary mix as well, because as you say, it's totally dense. And then all of a sudden, the band will disappear... And you just
0: have that organ dissonance. Yeah, Miles leaning on his literally leaning across the keys of his organ to create... Or just
1: sitting on it, sitting on his organ, creating the dissonance. There's
0: a lot of double entendres uh, going on here. But (laughs) but, uh, yeah, I mean, literally just the sound of someone sitting on the organ and creating this massive, massive cloud of dissonant notes. And as you say, I mean, it's... But the the groove as well is just relentless, isn't it? Relentlessly aggressive, relentlessly unforgiving. This piece of music, oh, it's magnificent, yeah. And the rest of the album is equally fascinating. Not, I don't think all of the pieces are successful. Some of them are quite tedious, I find actually. But I love the fact that it is fearless music making, and and this is oh, the this, whole album is like yeah. that, isn't it? I mean, I, he loved him madly. I've got a real soft spot for. Him. This is an era of Miles that famously was pretty much derided at the time by the critics and the jazz purists because this is Mm. way beyond notions of conventional jazz music but i think it's a music that over time was rediscovered particularly by the kind of of people who are into electronic music and has been completely reappraised since and it's now gone on to be considered one of the classic sort of moments in the miles davis catalog well you know it
1: remains one of my favorite Miles Davis albums and partly because of its fearlessness. And when it does something conventional, so there at times you almost hear lounge funk or lounge jazz, but there's always a dissonance in the background or sloppiness in the recording. This is quite an unusual record. One of the things I never got with people who dismiss this, the jazz purists, is that Miles was selling out because... You're not selling out. No, 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 no. Textual pieces making the furious dissonance of Rated X. This is as far from a sellout as you can get. Um, so, yeah, it, it's an album I've always kind of enjoyed. It, because it's maybe that little bit too indulgent, that little bit too needing of an edit, it's not my favourite, Miles, but it's. In that list of favourite Miles albums,
0: it's quite runny, isn't it? We, you, myself and Tim, like to use the, you know, the the analogy of something being runny or being solid uh and it's very runny a runny record is one that just becomes you know rather self-indulgent you know i suppose the the archetype of runny album would be the idea of the ambient record where somebody just goes to a synthesizer preset and holds down an e minor for 30 minutes that would be that would be considered extremely (laughs) runny wouldn't it and then you'd have something like pink moon by nick drake would be solid there's not an ounce I'm utterly There's not an ounce of unnecessary self-indulgence on the record. There's, this is quite a runny album for Miles, isn't it? There's a lot of things that just go on too long, a bit too unwieldy. doesn't quite work. But it's insane. And we applaud it for that. And the, as you say, the notion that he was selling out could not be more absurd.
1: This is it. Because I think when he returns in the 80s, then you get hints of sellout and often quite obvious ones. So one of my favourite quotes around this, because Miles plays a lot of organ on this album, as you've said, and I think it's from one of the later albums, it might even be Star People. And it actually starts, it's in the sleeve notes, and it's No One Plays Organ
0: Like Miles Davis. Which is true? Says my Ma- Yes, says Miles oh, say Davis. Davis. <laughs> <It's Yeah>. that- <laughs> let's let's move on from jazz. Your next category is art pop. Some great entries in in the in the art pop uh, category this year. Ten CC, Sheet Music, possibly maybe their best album uh, on balance. I was, I was
1: thinking that I think yeah. it probably is their best album. I think that at the time and probably seen afterwards, I'd have had more affection for original soundtrack and How Dare You, but. Sheet music is the one that I come back to because it has the perfect balance of the invention, the pastiche, and the truly affecting melodies. You know, it has old world men and somewhere in Hollywood, as well as some incredibly painful pieces. And that great single, "The Worst Band in the World," love for, it. Which I think is yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly, one of the pieces that should have been bigger than it was at the time. And Wall Street Shuffle is just a Brilliant. fantastic rock and single. Silly love. With great groove. Silly love. I yeah. love
0: that track also. Yeah. I think you can also tell they still like each other at this point, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and the cracks haven't yet appeared, you know, so.
1: It's not bloated. The thing is, this mm. is as ambitious as the two albums or three albums that follow it but it's not quite as bloated.
0: And what can we say about Sparks, who made, according to your list here, they made two records this year. Kimono and My House, of course, which features their, their absolute timeless masterpiece. This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us. And Propaganda, I guess, would have been towards the end of the year. Uh, which, in some ways, is kind of like a, a retread of Kimono, isn't it, a little bit? Yeah. But uh, still a great record, you know, some great singles. Has that got Never Turn Your Back on Mother Earth on it, I think, has it? I
1: think it yeah. has, yeah. And I think Amateur House and this sort of period as well. I mean, what can you endlessly say about inventive yeah. band. They managed to reinvent themselves in every single decade, sometimes several times. And they are never less than fascinating lyrically and musically. And these two albums, obviously, they were their third and fourth albums because they'd done a couple of albums, Mm. I think, on Todd Rundgren's label prior to this. Or at least Todd Rundgren had produced them at an earlier date. And they, they were always interesting. And they're kind of an American art pop band with anglophile influences, but. They add something to it that none of the British bands do. There's something utterly unique in Males' tone vocally.
0: And and if you get into that world, it's a fascinating world to explore, isn't it? I mean, 30 plus albums now. And as you say, mm. so many different genres and different ways they've reinvented themselves over the years. You know, the, the George moroder album from, from a few years later, you know, the Disco ear album is also a great record, isn't it? The other albums you've got in this category, the Electric Light Orchestra's El Dorado. I love everything the Electric Light Orchestra did. This is no exception. Great record. Perhaps not one of their best, what what you might call a transitional record. I love this one, actually. I love it, it weirdly too. Weirdly enough, it's one of my favourites. Oh, OK. No, listen, I love it, too. ELO, just... Go and get all the records. They're all brilliant. Um, but I think rather than focusing on an al- a band that everybody probably knows about already, this is an album that probably people wouldn't think about, which is the David Essex eponymous record, mm. uh, which was his second record. There's something... I listened again to this record last night. What I love about the David Essex records from this period... Ultimately is the production.
1: Yeah.
0: Jeff Wayne's production. It's almost proto-dub in a way, some of these songs. I mean, obviously Rock On is the classic single, which wasn't mm. on this album, it's on the previous album. There's lots of attempts to kind of remake that sound um yeah. in different contexts on this record. But it really works as an album because I think the production is so strong and it's so consistent. Across the record. There is one massive hit on this record, of course, going to make you a star, but that's kind of the outlier on the record, isn't it? The rest of it seems... Well, to, Stardust
1: see, is on it, isn't it, as well? Stardust
0: is on it too, yeah. But they're yeah. kind of the outliers in the sense that most of the record is trying to tap into that kind of rock-on production again, which I've been very influenced by. Interesting, very, very influenced by this production approach on my song Eminent Sleaze, which is also, folks, the theme song to <laughs> the Album Years podcast. Anyway... Your experience of David Essex, Tim?
1: Well, I think in some ways his good looks and his success go against him because it's a really interesting album, particularly from a production point of view, but also his voice is great. It's a really distinctive, quite expressive pop rock voice. And I think one of the things when I listen to it, Rock On is a magnificent single. And as you say, they try that trick on this album, maybe half of it, tries that but what's interesting about the production on this album is it's almost the 80s pre-80s it's Trevor Horn pre-Trevor Horn in that every single sound is processed to some degree every single mm. instrument is in there for a reason you feel that Wayne is probably obsessing over every hi-hat sound
0: yes I think you're right there is a definitely a very painterly quality to the production it's as you say it seems like everything has been the, the possibilities the sonic possibilities of every single sound have been explored. Uh, even if most of them basically end up meaning, I'm going to put this through the echo box. <laughs> but well, she does love the echo box. I mean, it's on yes, the voice yeah. always, it's on the drum sounds. And it, that's where I kind of get that sense of it, almost having an almost dub a sort of aspect to the production sometimes. Plate reverbs and yeah. slapback delays on almost every element. In the mix, but it works. It really works. I'm, I'm definitely a fan. But as I say, mainly, mainly because of I think Jeff Wayne's genius. Yeah. yeah. And to think that this was a mainstream, as you say, almost like a equivalent of a boy band, you know, yeah. at the time, to be making a record that was so strange sonically. I mean, the mind mind boggles. Does well, it, it reminds
1: really? me as well of you know what Bowie and Roxy were sort of seen as doing at the time, which was combining the past with the future, if you like. Because with the slapback echo, there's a kind of rock and roll quality. It's Gene Vincent. It's Elvis Presley. Yes. With the albums uh, for Essex, I think that Wayne is doing what Roxy Music and David Bowie were also doing, which is sort of combining rock's past with something very adventurous that kind of led it towards a future.
0: mm yeah, absolutely. No, that's a good call on the, yeah, the rocker. Yes, the use of the slapback delay, of course, was, was de rigueur for for uh, 50s rock and roll records. Interesting. And, of course, a lot of the sentiment behind the songs, you know, rock on, there's a, there's several uses use, uses of the phrase rock and roll on this record as well. There is a yeah. hankering for the past as well as a sort of looking to the future, and I think that's true of a lot of music uh, around this time, isn't it? And we, As mm. you say, we've talked about the sort of art rock, Uh, the art rockers who grew up on rock and roll music kind of taking it somewhere new we need to sort of burn through some more records here tim although we'll be here all night so a couple of categories left we need to talk about singer songwriter some great records this year from artists that we've talked about a lot on the show already todd Rundgren's todd van morrison's veed and fleece which i see is very much in a way as a kind of three decade trilogy with astral weeks made in the 60s common one made just at the the beginning of the 80s and this feels like the third part of that trilogy doesn't it? it's kind yeah. of
1: spiritual well it, you know it, it's van doing what i love van doing and you're right it fits in between astral weeks and common one it's the one album that just doesn't seem to be beholden to anything other than his the more poetic aspects of his spirit and music it's a lovely album yeah
0: so it's a lovely. So if you've enjoyed if you enjoyed Common One, which we talked about, I think, on our very first episode, I know a lot of people discovered that album as a consequence of of that episode, which is very flattering to us. The next ones you should listen to, assuming you already know the classic Astral Weeks, Veden Fleece is very much the the next part of that de facto trilogy if you like at least that's the way me and tim feel uh what else have we got this year? elton john's caribou i've always thought it's a massively underrated album in, in elton's category uh, i think it, it unfortunately it was unfortunate that it came between the two you know commercial peaks of his 70s career which was um it's a good yellow brick road and the album that came after this which was uh um captain fantastic but i think this album is just as good it has one of my favorite elton songs on it called ticking is so stunningly, heartbreakingly beautiful and very interesting. I noticed this Elton has got a um, a new box set coming out this week. I don't know if you saw mm-hmm. this, Tim. He's got a box set coming out this week and two of the discs in the box set are what he's called um, deep cuts. They're things mm-hmm. that he's personally chosen from his catalogue that he feels are often overlooked and I was very, very happy to see that he had picked Ticking from the Caribou album, okay. which I think is one of his greatest songs, Yeah. Uh, Roy Harper's Valentine We talked about Roy Harper on the show before I don't know that we
1: have actually I mean this has got some great David Bedford arrangements And a few of his prettier songs I mean Valentine essentially is his Love songs album I think we did discuss Life
0: Mask actually And this 12 Hours of Sunset What a song Yeah I mean
1: this is the Harper That is closer to the love songs of John Martin Or closer to the feel of Nick Drake Because there are some gorgeous string arrangements essentially quite simple songs, the likes of Forbidden Fruits. You've got none of his...
0: Forbidden Fruit. His 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 uh, almost got him in a lot of trouble. That song. Oh, indeed. Yes. L- yeah. So we we best gloss over that. Yes. It was probably I thought it was a good idea at the time. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, a, a lovely record, as you say. Almost like the more accessible side of Roy. If the if the more unwieldy albums like Stormcock and Life Mask, the extended compositions are, t- are too much for you, then maybe Valentine are more accessible. The songs are short. They're essentially love songs. Yeah.
1: Just don't. Don't read the lyrics to Forbidden
0: Fruit. Don't read the lyrics to Forbidden Fruit. Don't
1: think about what it's about.
0: Everyone is now going on Wikipedia to look up the lyrics to Forbidden Fruit. Don't read
1: the sleeve notes that he writes about it that incriminates him. Don't read them. Don't read it. Don't read it. Everyone's going to read it. Forbidden Fruit, Roy Harper, don't listen to it. Don't read the notes.
0: It's like when somebody says to you, if you're a musician, and somebody says to you, uh, oh, did you see that review somebody wrote about you on uh, such and such? He (laughs) said, no, I didn't. Oh, don't read it. Don't read it. (laughs) You just know that you're going to have to go and read it now. Uh, anyway, so listen. Uh, so uh, Richard and Linda Thompson's I Want to See the Bright Lights Tonight, one of, one of my favourite songs of the whole Great, uh, Well, Great Valeria. Great Valeria. Great Valeria. Music. Stunning song. But the record for me that is the top of the tree this year is an artist that you said you had stopped listening to because you didn't... What was it you said you felt he was... Act, something along the lines you felt he was acting too much. It was all an act. So you, you th- you'd thrown out all his records. I, I, Tom yeah. Waits. Tell me again, Tim, why you don't like Tom Waits.
1: I've got to remember now what I said. Um, with Tom You said Waits,
0: something like, you said something like, it made no sense, you said something like <laughs> you feel he's playing a role, which is true of almost every musician and every pop star that's ever been. And I
1: might be entirely wrong on this, because in truth, I don't know his background. But it, but Randy Newman, for example, does the same thing, but it affects me because Randy Newman came from a very closeted, middle-class background with um, his uncle being a famous soundtrack composer in his own right. And he did a concept album this year, Good Old Boys, which effectively is about people from the South, people whose experiences he would not have known about. And often it's a very sophisticated view of um, racial bigotry, but also hypocrisy in the way in which the Northern American states view the Southern American states and so on. And I don't know why, because... Yes, perhaps there's a hypocrisy here with me because I can take it with Randy Newman, where I think they're brilliantly judged short stories and incredibly affecting and something like Marie kills me every time. Whereas Tom Waits, I just see it as being an actor inhabiting, you know, kind of Charles Bukowski style persona that maybe he's not earned.
0: Right. Well, that's dribble. Absolute (laughs) dribble. But I did let you finish. I mean, listen, I can understand. Yes, there's a lot of Bukowski in some ways. There's a lot of almost like for me, it's like looking at an Edward Hopper. You know, painting. He, he's definitely got that kind of bar fly, late night, American diner. That's the atmosphere I get from this. Mm. And I love it for that. You know, this is definitely an album about the small hours. It's about the, that time of night, the ghosts of Saturday night, the heart of Saturday night. These two songs, stunning, but it's also songs, Diamonds on My Windshield. I mean, I just think he's a genius and observational songwriting. And yes, you're right. There probably is a little bit of affectation to it too. But I completely buy it. The moment you write a song, unless it's purely autobiographical, you are you are borrowing. You're creating a kind of fictional construct.
1: I agree. And um, obviously, the thing is that when you're often writing that fiction, sometimes it can be more emotional. You can put yourself more into that story, believe that story, than sometimes directly autobiographical. Lyrics, so I don't disagree with that.
0: Heart of Saturday Night for me, one of the preeminent masterpieces of the '70s. Uh, this is a no-risk disc for me. A few other singer-songwriter records that we're going to just mention it. Joni's Court and Spark. I think we both agree this is far from our favourite Joni album, although it's it's obviously part of a string of. of you know, classic albums she created through the 70s. Uh, Neil Young's On The Beach, I think Ditto, really. Uh, we, we've given Neil Young a bit of a rough ride on the show, really, haven't we? Because we're both massive fans. Mm. But every time we've done an episode, we've sort of said, oh, yes, and Neil Young released an <laughs> album this year. Uh, and it was really good. I think I'm waiting for the opportunity to talk about, you know, one of the albums he's made that is really beloved to yeah. me. I mean, I
1: love On The Beach. I think On The Beach is a great album, but Zuma eclipses it.
0: Yes, I, I I feel the same. Yes, and in fact, there was one album I would have loved to have talked about in 1979 that we managed to forget he made <laughs> that year, yes. which was Russ uh, Russ Never Sleeps, which I would have loved to have waxed lyrical about as a masterpiece. On the beat, it's a great album, absolutely a great album. Let's move on to your last category, really, which is electronic music, uh, and I'm looking down the electronic list, and most of these records are also what you might be able to call kraut rock. Tangerine Dreams Phaedra, I think one of the, you know, the cornerstones of the whole genre of electronic music period. I mean really just a, a, a genius record that I'm sure most people know. If you don't, you really should remedy that. But 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 let's talk about maybe some of the 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 less obvious records that came out in the electronic genre this year. Franco Battiato's clique, I think you say it like that, clique. Franco Battiato, an Italian artist who was obviously massively successful as a mainstream pop star, I think probably before and after. Yeah. But he ha- but he has this period in his career, doesn't he, in the early 70s, which he, he makes this string of albums, which I think he reissued under the name of The Experimental Years, which is not hyperbole. These are really, really experimental records, aren't they?
1: Battiato is kind of interesting because when he starts off, he's making experimental conceptual albums that seemingly coming out of psychedelic... Floyd, so there's a, there's a progressive element to what he's doing, but there's also quite a stringent melodramatic quality that's quite Bowie esque and very
0: very, very theatrical. Yes. Yeah, yeah,
1: and and I'd say that Hamill, who was a huge influence on sort of um, Italiano progressive rock at that period, is also an influence in terms of the theatricality and the um, extreme emotions, and so his first two albums use a lot of textures, as well as a lot of more conventional instruments. And as the 70s go on, he gets even more experimental and is probably listening to Boulez, Stockhausen, and his music becomes very, very far removed from rock or pop of any kind. And after that, suddenly he becomes almost a eurovision friendly pop star it's there's a, a
0: massive shift so it's an interesting career what i love about this record it seems to have also it almost plays out like a radio play i mean you use the word i think theatrical it feels almost like you're listening to a kind of performance of a play. There also seems to be a little bit more of an influence from people like Terry Riley on this record, minimal keyboard patterns, repetition. But there's also sort of freeform saxophone solos. In fact, I could argue it's not really an electronic album at all. It's just a very, very experimental, uh, experimentally-minded record, isn't it? But Mm. it's fascinating. Um, It's fascinating to listen to these records he made at this point in his career because they really are... Uh, they couldn't be further away from what he became. Well, he was lucky as well. I think Fetus
1: and Pollution were huge albums, partly because, remember, you know, Van de Porn Hearts was a number one album there for several months. And mm. you were getting albums like Ys, um, Il Belletto de Bronzo. There were some extreme albums that were getting to, to number one in Italy. And I guess he fitted in there. And, um, yeah, th- those first two albums are Interesting and experimental enough, but what he goes on to do, and and you're right there. I think he does kind of pick up on the American minimalists a lot earlier than many other people. You know, there is that Terry Riley, Philip Glass influence, but then he perhaps goes outside of that. I think by about seventy eight, he's making very odd albums with tones and pianos and and so on. That you know, using the piano in extraordinary ways, and and yes, then suddenly there's a cut-off point and um, he's the the go-to M.O.R. Eurovision Mm. song composer (laughs) that...
0: Also this year, so the German, other, the other German entries, Klaus Schultz, Black Dance, I, I love that record. Edgar Froes from Tangerine Dream made his first solo album Aqua, and Cluster made a very strange record, Zuckerzeit, which was very, very influential. I think on Brian Eno. Let's yeah. get him in again. Why not? <laughs> um, this is a, a perhaps a slightly less heralded uh, artist from the Krautrock scene, uh, certainly in comparison with your Kraftworks and your Tangerine Dreams and your your, your Faust and those kind of people. But Cluster, in their own way, were completely unique. This is a very odd album, isn't it? I mean, they. this is actually a bit of a departure for them this year. The previous yeah. two records were, were more in the sort of, you know, spacey, cosmish sort of bracket. But then they come out with this record which is using these... The, the, the title of the album means Sugar Time, quite literally. And there's something very sort of sickly, sweet and sugary about the kind of sounds they're using. They're almost yeah. u- deliberately using these kind of slightly cheesy kind of M.O.R., library music sounds, but creating this very strange otherworldly music too.
1: Yeah, and I think it has a very unique place in in Cluster's output because, as you say, it's very different from the more experimental early albums because, like, Craftwork and Tangerine Dream, they started off in a more abstract, dissonant way. And this is a very, very sweet album. I mean, it has elements in a way of... Elevator music It reminds me in a way You know, We were talking about more specials How they were influenced by mm. elevator music mm. There's a kind music, of ele- yeah. elevator music sweetness to this um, So it has quite a unique and accessible sound Without being particularly cheesy or a sellout It's a lovely album And in some ways it kind of sets the template For some of Harmonia's music later And Rodelius, some of his solo work Which always has this Um, easy listening meets kraut rock aspect.
0: But they really seem to have discovered their sound on this record, having dabbled in the sort of world of, you know, cosmish and space rock. And this is the point at which they've said, no, we're going to do our own thing. And this is the result.
1: You could argue Tangerine Dream and Kraftwerk settle on their sound in this year as well, or their approach, you know, with Autobahn Mm. and and Phaedra, you know, the sequences Mm. coming into Tangerine Dream's Mm. music... And craftwork. one of the things that you said there is quite interesting that in some ways, in being more accessible, it makes the music more alien. And that is also the case with, say, Autobahn, where they're consciously bringing in aspects of what they see as American pop, like the Beach Boys. But they do it so strangely, it makes them mm. more otherworldly.
0: Mm-hmm. I get that sometimes from even from things like Carpenters and ABBA and, 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 and a band like Free Design, that it's obviously very, very middle of the road. But there is something also slightly strange about it, which, which I, you know I guess in a way is what I'm responding to. I can't quite articulate what that is. But yes. Well, I think what it is that it's not quite right. It's not quite right. Yeah. Something that is not sweet or accessible in any respect is another, is a French artist, Heldon, made their first album this year, Richard Pien has uh, Electronic Guerrilla, which is a kind of the sound of sickness, isn't it? Which he, he's kind of made a career out of this kind of sick, oppressive, mi- miasma of dissonant sound. And it's kind of there right from the beginning, isn't it, on this record?
1: Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I'm afraid we do have to mention Eno and Fripp, though, with... Heldon and Pinhouse because yeah, that influence. is where he comes from and he kind of adds a symphonic progressive grandeur to electronic music but in a way that is far from gentle and far from conventionally appealing.
0: No, I think you're right. I, I think it's fair to say he took no pussyfooting as his template, uh, mm. certainly for most of his career. But he does, but he does bring in other elements like the use of amplifiers yeah, yeah. and synthesizers, uh, and repetition and ostinatos, which he which he plays. And is obviously his guitar's tone is very, very influenced by by his Royal Highness, uh, Mr. Fripp. Mm. Um, in fact, I think on the next album, the opening track is called "In the Wake of King Fripp," <laughs> if I remember rightly, uh, which is kind of a bit of a giveaway yeah. there. In isn't the it, Wake really? of
1: King Fripp, and I didn't write
0: that song. No, you didn't write a song. Okay, Tim, I think that's a good point. Uh, Bowie's barking in the background there. My dog, Bowie, I should say. Bowie, shush, daddy's on a podcast. So, Tim, let's let's cut to the chase. Let's pick our favourite album of the year or favourites of the year and also the album that we think in the long term was perhaps the most uh, influential or significant. This is one I uh, almost find
1: impossible, really, um, because there are so many that could be favourite albums or albums that meant a lot to me, you know, when I was younger, and still do, and then albums I've discovered subsequently. And I find it very difficult. In terms of influential, I'm going to go for um, a rather left-field one, actually, because I know I could go for Autobahn and um, Tangerine Dreams' Phaedra in ushering in that electro-pop era of sequences and drum machines and so on. But I'm going to go with Jeff Wayne's production on David Essex, because I think that really ushers in... Prince, to a certain extent, although I'm sure Prince didn't necessarily listen to that album, and Trevor Horn, that kind of 80s obsession with sound processing and instrument placement. It's such an unusual album from a production point of view that I'm going to put David Essex as the futuristic album of 1974.
0: OK, very interesting choice. OK, and your, and your favourite album? Rock Bottom probably would edge it. I'm just surprised you hesitated because I, I know how much that album means to you. Yeah, and I'm going to go with uh, the yeah, bottom. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. All right, now, uh, so me... Um, oh, God, this is tough. Uh, I'm looking down this list here. Yeah, um, so many albums it I love. It is tough. It is tough. Yeah, it's tough to pick one. I think, I think I'm think i going to have to shoot out a few here that I really love and I never get bored of. Peter Hamill's In Camera, Gene Clark's No Other, Hawkwind's Man, uh, Hall of the Mountain Grill, Elton John's Caribou I love, Tom Waits' The Heart of Saturday Night might just edge it for me as... The album I listened to the most from from this year, actually, Tangerine Dream's Phaedra. Yeah, absolutely, some great records. Uh, most influential. That was a, that was a really good call on on the on the Jeff Wayne production on the David Essex. Um, well, maybe you know, maybe I would go with the Shaggy Otis record because even though again, I'm like you, I'm not sure if Prince actually listened to it. This is the Prince ingredients they're all here this this is the kind of prince recipe mm-hmm. you know right here psychedelia great pop hooks great funk grooves a great voice great songs accessibility it's all here in a way on this record um, I don't know how influential it was because I don't think it was that successful at the time but I think in in many ways it's the album for me which tells I mean when I listen to an artist for example a contemporary artists like Michael Kiwanuka I hear exactly what Shuggie Otis was doing in 1974 on the Kiwanooka album. Well, no, what I'm thinking
1: is that, you know, like Nick Drake, Shuggie Otis, I think, probably is more widely listened to by musicians than he was at the time or in the 80s. And so I think that that influence probably is going to be heard in more music now than it was in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And the same goes for people like Nick Drake, who obviously had no real impact in the 70s, but had a massive impact in the 90s and um, 21st century. And I realised that one of my favourite jazz rock albums was uh, 74 that we've not even discussed, which is Weather Report, Mysterious Traveller, which I think is a marvellous record. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. yes, good record. I love
1: the keyboard textures on that. Yeah, and, and Bowie on Diamond Dogs, I always think it's one of those albums that kind of slips in between the cracks because it's not as well known as Young Americans. But for me, it's um, a lot more inventive, a lot more edgy and a lot more beautiful than Young Americans, which, again, I think is a great album. But Diamond Dogs definitely edges it for me.
0: I'm also, I am also actually also want to give out a shout out to the Gentle Giant album from this year, The Power and the Glory, because I think they're such an underrated band. And I think this is, for me, this is the pinnacle of, of their catalogue. I mean, so many great records but something about this record just edges it for me um it has my favorite gentle giant song on it, aspiration so uh, uh, definitely a shout out for that one if you are a fan of progressive rock but you've not checked out uh, Gentle Giant which I think is true of a lot of people sadly um, they are first division um, they are absolutely up there with all of the greats and they deserve to be so uh, check that uh, out
1: well I think that's a point isn't it because I think this year you know if we talk it a peak prog I think what you get is it was the best of prog it was the worst of prog so you have quite a number of terrible prog by numbers albums in 1974 but you also have bands like Gentle Giant and Genesis in my opinion reaching creative peaks as well, you know, the pinnacles of their career.
0: Thank you very much for listening. Um if you have enjoyed the podcast, please, as we always say, do do go on and give us a review or make some comments or leave us a rating. Or if you've just spotted a terribly embarrassing schoolboy error, please make us aware of it. And we're quite happy to admit our mistakes, of which I'm sure there were many more in this episode. Thank you very much for listening. It's goodbye from me and goodbye from Tim.
1: Bye bye. We'll uh-huh. be